welcome to A Feminist in Progress, the podcast that's been opening books to retell the stories of journalists who broke the new stories that helped usher the Me Too movement as we know it today. In this episode, we're focusing on the third and fourth chapters of Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey's 2019 book, She Said. In the last episode, we joined Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey as they began their journalistic investigation of Harvey Weinstein's alleged sexual misconduct. They spoke with sources, specifically some high-profile actresses with stories to share. But a basic investigative question must be answered. Were there any public records of abusive behavior by Weinstein? New stories of harassment were also being formulated, but each industry showed how there still tend to be loopholes of sorts. As Cantor and Tuhi write, and I quote, In each industry, harassment had its own particular ideology. In restaurants, liquor was omnipresent at the workplace, eroding judgment and loosening inhibitions. And managers were often loath to confront customers who got out of line. Silicon Valley was filled with young men who got rich overnight and felt accountable to no one. In shipyards, construction sites, and other traditionally male workplaces, men sometimes tend to drive out women by putting them in physical danger, end quote. As familiar as the journalists at the New York Times were with the basics of sexual harassment, they came to a deeper realization that some of the weapons intended to fight sexual harassment were actually enabling it. A fellow Times journalist, Emily Steele, who worked on breaking the story on Fox News and Bill O'Reilly and Bill O'Reilly's alleged sexual harassment, described a cash-for-silence kind of deal when it comes to addressing sexual harassment in the workplace. Such a deal raises certain broader questions. Were women across the U.S. signing documents like these every day, often unbeknownst to almost anyone? And were sexual harassment lawyers tackling the problem they purported to fight or pumping out settlements for profit? These questions, apart from whether there were any public records of Weinstein's harassment, were what Jody and Megan needed to answer should they pursue the women's allegations. These cash-for-silence deals that women agreed to were signed for good reasons, according to legal experts. Reasons could range from needing the money, privacy, lack of better options, and just wanting to move on. Taking the alternative route of pursuing a lawsuit to court was punishing. As the authors put it, and I quote, federal sexual harassment laws were weak, leaving out vast categories of people, freelancers, employees at workplaces with fewer than 15 employees. The federal statute of limitations for filing a complaint could be as short as 180 days, and federal damages were capped at $300,000, not necessarily enough to cover the lost earnings or attract a good lawyer, end quote. As the authors point out as well that, and and I quote again, the United States had a system for muting sexual harassment claims. 
which often enabled the harassers instead of stopping them. Women routinely signed away the right to talk about their own experiences. Harassers often continued onward, finding fresh ground on which to commit the same offenses. The settlements and confidentiality agreements were almost never examined in law school classrooms or open court. This was why the public had never really understood what was happening. Even those in the room with long histories of covering gender issues had never really fully registered what was going on, end quote. So, you know, Cantor and Tuhi carried on with their pursuit of the investigative story. So they began to get in touch with women who had allegations of sexual harassment or worse against Weinstein, who were actually not prominent actresses. Because recall at this point, most of the stories that they had came from prominent actresses. So the women that they were looking for were women who worked in Weinstein's film company, oftentimes working directly with him. And so at this point in the book, we meet Zelda Perkins, who was actually mentioned earlier in the Catch and Kill miniseries. So Perkins led the journalists to Rowena Chu, who was then unnamed in Pharaoh's Catch and Kill. I did mention that Zelda Perkins was able to dodge Weinstein's harassment, but she witnessed the impact of of Weinstein's sexual abuse when Rowena Chu became a victim. But Perkins had something valuable for breaking the news story. She had incriminating documents. She actually managed to keep a copy of the confidentiality agreement. Great. Yet, the journalists hit another wall. Rowena Chu was not responding to their requests for an interview. In the meantime, another woman, Laura Madden, who worked for Weinstein, shared her story of sexual harassment at the hands of Weinstein. Cantor and Tuhi write this about Madden's story. And this is quite long, but it's quite a significant passage that I feel like I want to share. Madden's story as a kind of distillation, bringing together the elements of what Jody and Began were starting to call the pattern. Weinstein's hallmark moves, so similar from account to account. Each of these stories was upsetting unto itself, but even more telling, more chilling, was their uncanny repetition. Actresses and former film company employees, women who did now know one another, who lived in different countries, were telling the reporters variations on the same story, using some of the same words describing such similar scenes. Eager young women new recruits to Miramax, hoping to connect with the producer, hotel suites, waiting bottles of champagne, Weinstein in a bathrobe. They had been so young, so overpowered. They had all wanted what young Laura Madden had wanted, their own equivalent of that job in the London office, the chance to work, participate, and succeed. Cantor and Tuhi also mentioned Black Cube, the spy operatives organization that Ronan Farrow mentioned in Catch and Kill. It turns out that even the Times reporters were also trailed by Black Cube operatives. Now, 
Before I end this episode, I actually want to bring up Lisa Bloom, that you know, feminist icon, Lisa Bloom. If you would recall, you know, she was the celebrity lawyer who made herself appear to be a feminist advocate, but turned out to be working with and for Weinstein. You know, she was actually working for Weinstein's quote, positive reputation management. Now, Cantor and Tuhi mentioned that Weinstein actually paid Bloom an initial retainer of $50,000 and that she collaborated with one of the Black Cube agents named Diana Phillip, who actually targeted Rose McGowan. And Bloom also helped orchestrate the collection of information on Rose McGowan, Ambra Batiliano Gutierrez, Ashley Judd, and other women who might accuse Weinstein, among other shitty things that she did. Needless to say, Weinstein was going all out to kill the investigative news stories about him. <laughs> 